More than a year after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, I still find myself thinking about the people there who were trying to get out, the people who were desperate to flee the Taliban, who were crowding the airport and just praying for a seat on a plane that would take them away and to a new life in the United States. What happened to those people? Of course, some did make it out. They got to the U.S. Many others did not. And then some people ended up somewhere in between. And that's our story today about a group of Afghan refugees who are very much in limbo in a place that's a little surprising. The next voice you'll hear is Post Report senior producer Ted Muldoon. It was last October when Allahu Muhiti first arrived in Albania. She was being put up at this hotel called the Raffaello. When she got there, it was already dark out, so she couldn't see much. It wasn't until the next morning when she woke up, looked out the window, and thought, this must be a mistake. The morning when I came up and just opened the balcony door, and I was like, here is the sea, it's a beach. Why they gave us this much? The Raffaello is a huge luxury resort right on the coast of Albania, just across the Adriatic Sea from Italy. When Alaha stepped onto her balcony, she could see a massive courtyard with manicured lawns and four swimming pools. Alaha's mom, Sofia, had a similar reaction. She says she heard from friends who ended up in the U.S. about refugee camps with like 20 to 30 people in a room. This was not that. She said once we got here, the environment was great. Alaha and her family had a room to themselves. They had their own bathroom, comfy beds, air conditioning, a TV for family movie nights. It was better than they could ever have expected. But that was almost a year ago. And now, that hotel room is feeling a whole lot smaller. And you do everything in this room? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. We live here. We live here. I don't call that a room. That's my home. Let's go home. <laughs> it's, that's it. And you should be grateful for that. You have a room here. You're not in Afghanistan. There are currently about 780 Afghans, like Ilaha and Safiya, who are stranded at the Raffaello Resort in Albania. That's Abby Hauslunner. She's a reporter at The Post who has spent much of the past year covering the aftermath of the evacuation. She and Ted traveled to Albania over the summer to understand the situation that these Afghans are in. These are people who claim to have U.S. ties, and they were actually evacuated from Afghanistan by Americans and by American nonprofits last year during the U.S. withdrawal. These Afghans thought that Albania was going to be a quick stopover on their way to new lives and resettlement in the United States. Months after they arrived, they learned that the American government had no immediate plans to let them in. They're still here, and they don't know when they're going to leave or where they're going to go. So what started as a relief has turned into this strange limbo, and it's left everyone involved really frustrated and asking one big question. Who is responsible? I just wasted one year of my life here. You're doing nothing. 
every day same some people telling us you are on vacation we are saying no we are we bored of this vacation we are stuck here we are like a prisoner from the newsroom of the washington post this is post reports i am martine powers it's friday september 16th today what it's like to be a refugee in a strange country stuck at a beach resort with no idea if you and your family will ever be able to start new lives. It's a story that involves improbable culture clashes, big expectations, grave disappointments, a $2 million unpaid hotel bill, and an elaborate escape from the Taliban. Ted and Abby will take it from here. The scenes we're seeing in Afghanistan, they're gut-wrenching, particularly for our veterans, our diplomats, humanitarian workers, for anyone who has spent time on the ground working to support the Afghan people. During the U.S. withdrawal last year, there was, you know, this three-week period where on August 15th, the Taliban took control of the country. And the U.S. was committed to evacuating, to having the last people out by August 31st. That was the date they set, and they weren't going to go past it. And so that meant there was a time limit. Those three weeks were just sort of marred by desperation and chaos. Because you had to get out during those three weeks. You had to get into the airport. All kinds of people from all walks of life were trying to flee. A lot of the people trying to get into the airport were people who had worked for the U.S. military or the U.S. government, you know, former interpreters, but also, you know, people who had worked as housekeepers on U.S. bases or cleaners or janitors, lawyers and judges and athletes and scholars, you know, people who had who had risen up through this system that America kind of helped build and sustain, who saw their whole lives and livelihoods kind of collapsing with the return of the Taliban, and they were trying to get out. Officially, the end of the U.S. withdrawal was August 31st. But what lots of people don't realize is that even after the 31st, there were still attempts to get Afghans out. Because flights were still evacuating during that point. There were still nonprofits, but also U.S. government officials and military veterans, U.S. diplomats, you know, people in the private sector who had some Afghanistan connection, people from basically across government and private society trying their damnedest to get the people they cared about into the airport and get them on flights. One of these people is a guy named Jason Kander. He's a veteran of Afghanistan and went on to become a politician. We went to war in this country for 20 years, and we told these people that we would have their backs. Kander was among those people trying to get former interpreters and colleagues out. Like with most vets, it started with uh, me and a battle buddy that I was over there with trying to get out a few guys who we were with over there. They were trying to get out guys that they knew or the families of guys they knew. You know, it was a 20-year war, so they all have families now. So trying to get out these families. Kander and his buddies form the Afghan Rescue Project. It was one of 
the many organizations that grew on sort of an ad hoc basis out of the evacuation. We had a bunch of other vets come to us who also had people there with families. And before we knew it, we had about 380 Afghans in a group that we needed to get out. The airport closed. We were unsuccessful in getting them in to the airport. So we needed a new plan. We raised a bunch of money and we chartered an airliner. I can't overstate just how difficult it was to coordinate some of these charter flights. Remember, by this point, the Taliban now controlled the country. The challenge wasn't just getting a plane. It was getting the evacuees to the plane without being caught. And so that's the thing is you got to stage everybody in one place and then move them all in mass to the airport. But you got to keep them safe and hidden until that point. They had to somehow get 380 people to travel covertly to an evacuation point in the city in northern Afghanistan. It was about an eight-hour drive from Kabul. And the plan they came up with, I imagine somebody watched the movie Argo and was like, yes, let's do that. So we held a four-day wedding, fake wedding. They had this whole group of 380 people pretend to attend a wedding so that the Taliban, you know, wouldn't come after them, wouldn't suspect anything. So a bunch of families, like 75 families who did not know each other, had to show up and during the day keep up the cover that they were at a wedding and dance and party while at night they slept in the wedding hall because they couldn't leave. And then on the last day, the Taliban which had been patrolling the whole area looking for these people, they finally got curious what was going on in the wedding hall. So they came in, and thankfully the cover worked. They didn't realize it was the people they were looking for. They danced a couple songs, ate some of the food, and left. Even after all of that, after chartering a plane, staging a fake wedding, narrowly escaping the Taliban, Kander's group still had a problem. They needed a place for the plane to go, because at least immediately, that could not be the United States. I mean, we'd have gone anywhere, you know. Um, They just needed to get out of Afghanistan because they were being hunted. And Albania had indicated some willingness to talk. Why Albania? What's their connection to Afghanistan? So Albania is a pretty small country in southern Europe, and... It's a Balkan nation. It's one of the poorest countries in Europe, but it's also a member of NATO, and it's a steadfast U.S. ally. And part of the reason for that is that during the 90s, there was a war in neighboring Kosovo. And the Clinton administration came to the defense of ethnic Albanians there, who were, at that point, the victims of forced expulsions and war crimes. Mr. Milosevic wanted to keep control of Kosovo by getting rid of all of you, and we said no. This is a speech that Clinton gave to ethnic Albanians back in 1999. Now he has lost his grip on Kosovo, and you have returned. No more days hiding in cellars, no more nights freezing in mountains, and forests. We have a fantastic relation with the United States, and uh, frankly, we owe to the United States even the, the existence of the Albanian states. 
That's Albania's prime minister, Eddie Rama. He was one of the first and really one of the only European heads of state to kind of throw open the doors to Afghans fleeing at the end of the U.S. withdrawal. He was not only willing to take in Afghans, but saw it as sort of a duty. It's in our DNA to help people in need. And 30 years ago, frankly, we were like the Afghans. We were escaping and uh, we needed shelter and we were sheltered. So it's a time to give, it's a time to take. It's like this. So Rama said that he put the word out and then he said various organizations, nonprofits that were trying to evacuate Afghans heard about Albania's offer and called him up and asked if he would take their Afghans. And he said the first person who called him was former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. You have to know, you know, the Clintons have a very special place in the in the Albanian hearts. You know, he said in Kosovo, there are even a bunch of people with the name Bill Clinton. (laughs) Bill Clinton together. Like Eddie Rama, it's like Bill Clinton Rama, you know, and Hillary, a lot of girls named Hillary. And so, you know, he said, for one thing, okay, we already, he was ready to take Afghans. He wasn't going to say no. But also, you know. If you get a call from Hillary Clinton, even without knowing her, and she asks something from Albania, you have to say yes. Prime Minister Rama didn't just say yes to letting Afghans land in Albania. He also wanted them to be welcomed with dignity. He was insistent that he didn't want to set up a refugee camp in Albania. The U.S. government uh, proposed us to to build camp, and uh, I said, no, this will not happen in Albania. He said that camps were a dehumanizing experience for people, especially those that have already been traumatized. And he also said that Albanians knew this from firsthand experience. This was what we wanted when we were the Afghans once upon a time. And this is what we got sometimes, and sometimes we got camps, and sometimes we got racist treatments. So we wanted to give them the best, and we gave them the best. So that was the plan. The Afghans would stay at the resort while they waited for the next step. And in the meantime, it'd be the responsibility of the nonprofits who got them there. That included the Afghan Rescue Project, Vital Voices, which is the organization founded by Hillary Clinton, the National Endowment for Democracy, and even FIFA, like World Cup Soccer FIFA. All these groups agreed to pay the Afghans living expenses, about $30 per person per day. So the Afghans arrived, they landed in charter planes in Tirana, the capital of Albania. Most of them got there between August and early November. They headed straight to the Raffaello, just so relieved that they did it. They got out. So what was the timeline that you and the Albanians kind of set out when they were coming in? Well, our expectation, given our conversations with the Department of Homeland Security, was that everybody was going to be out within the first couple weeks of December. That's Jason Kander again from the Afghan Rescue Project. He and others felt confident that this group of refugees would get fast-tracked to the United States because of a thing called Operation Allies Welcome. This was the program that the Biden administration had rolled out to essentially deal with all these Afghans it had evacuated. But the question of whether the Afghans in Albania qualified for this program turned out to be a lot more complicated than people thought. What I don't think a lot of people, and certainly not the Afghans, realized at that in those days was that it mattered what flight they got onto. 
whether they got onto a U.S. military aircraft, which uh, government officials refer to as gray tails, or some other aircraft, civilian or otherwise, a white tail, ended up being a pretty crucial factor on whether they made it to the United States, or certainly whether they made it in, you know, within the next couple of months after that. And the the reason that ended up being significant is because if you were on a flight, a U.S. government flight, you know, and you landed on U.S. government property, a base, you were pretty clearly U.S. responsibility. And for the most part, you were taken to the United States and resettled through Operation Allies Welcome. All those people who made it onto Gray Tails, who made it, you know, onto U.S. military bases, were then, you know, processed and sent onward to military bases in the U.S. and resettled. But for everyone who got on the White Tails, you know, chartered flights, they wound up in other places, basically not U.S. military bases for the most part. And so it wasn't immediately clear whose responsibility they were. Even if it was an American organization, even if it was Hillary Clinton, you know, or a member of Congress evacuating you, you're not on U.S. government property. You're not riding in U.S. government property. And so the lines are a little more blurred. So for people like Jason Kander, who were helping facilitate these charter flights, they didn't understand that the Afghans that they were evacuating would be processed differently. Some of the evacuation organizers said that, yeah, they did understand that landing in Tirana at the airport in Tirana was not the same thing as landing on the U.S. base in Qatar. But, you know, a lot of people also said either they weren't really thinking about that at the time because the goal was just to get people out, or they thought that there was so much frantic coordination going on between people in government and out of government that, you know, it just wasn't really clear. There was a lot of confusion about who's in charge of all this stuff. At the time, like, you were talking to different people and getting different messages. And so for the State Department, what what did they have to say about how they were messaging to, like, these NGOs and people like Jason Kander at this time? You know, the State Department's line is, we were very clear. We could not have been more clear that only certain people in certain categories had access to Operation Allies Welcome and therefore access to resettlement in the United States. I spoke to Ambassador Elizabeth Jones. She's this veteran diplomat at the State Department. And since last fall, she has been the coordinator for Afghan relocation efforts at the State Department. They were not misled, but there's a sense I have anyway that people who don't like the answer they're getting will keep asking the question, hoping to get a different answer. And so they really don't want to believe what it it is that we said to them about what what was possible and what wasn't possible. What she told me is that the responsibility for anyone evacuated by private charter lay with, you know, the people evacuating them and the place, the country that took them. For a couple months after the Afghans arrived at the Raffaello, they still held out hope that the U.S. State Department might still admit them as part of Operation Allies Welcome. But at the end of last year, they got some news. In December, the State Department came to everyone and said, guess what? Anyone who evacuated Afghanistan on a charter flight 
during the U.S. withdrawal, so before or through August 31st, they can come in through Operation Allies Welcome. The problem is that most of the Afghans at the Raffaello left Afghanistan after August 31st. There was suddenly this realization that, wait a second, (laughs) there is no clear path to the United States that if the State Department is saying, guess what, we're going to process people who fit into this category and we're not in it, well then, where does that leave us? After the break, we hear about life inside the Raffaello and a new announcement from the State Department that could have a huge impact on these refugees. We'll be right back. The Raffaello is in the resort city of Shenzhen. In the evenings, the Afghans like to sit by the pool and chat, or they'll go on a stroll out back along the boardwalk. When they first arrived in the winter, they had the place to themselves. But in the summer, the Raffaello and the boardwalk is teeming with tourists. Shenzhen, as Albanians say, you know, it's not one of its top fancy beach resorts. It sort of reminded me in a way of like a... An Albanian ocean city, Maryland, yes, you know? Yes, exactly. That's what, it reminded me of that or of like any number of East Coast boardwalk cities. New Jersey, I'm telling you. This all looks like New Jersey. Right. The Jersey Shore, Atlantic City. Right. Yeah. Because you've got this packed beach, right? So many people and this boardwalk that goes all along the, the coast. Is this like a little amusement park up here? Ice cream shops and all those classic kind of boardwalk games, you know, like where you have to guess the weight of something, and you win a stuffed animal, things like that. At the hotel, the Afghans and tourists stay in the same buildings, on the same floors even. It creates these surreal moments. I remember getting into the elevator. I think I was on the ninth floor with uh, a couple of Afghans I was talking to, and we, we ride down. The elevator stops at every single floor on the way down. And this is a tiny elevator. Each floor it opens and there's like, you know, families of Afghans standing there. And then we get to, I think it was like the sixth floor or fifth floor or something. And it opens and there were like seven Kosovar tourists standing there in their swimsuits. You know, like the men aren't wearing shirts. You know, they're all a little sunburned. They're holding some tubes. There's some kids, you know, with goggles on. They're like barefoot. They're ready to go to the pool. You know, and all the Afghans, they're all in, none of them are wearing swimsuits, right? The women don't go in the pool at all. You know, the, most of the women are fully covered and, you know, a lot of them wear headscarves. You know, so we're all crammed in like sardines and the two groups just sort of look at each other for a moment. And then the doors close and we keep going. It was really weird. And then, you know, there's the band. Then there's the band. (laughs) In the summer, once it hits 8 p.m., this is the sound of the hotel. Albanian folk music booming from the courtyard. The same band plays the same set list every night. 
Tourists love it. They dance in circles holding hands, they're drinking, they're laughing. But the tourists get to come and go. The Afghans, who hear it every night, they don't even speak Albanian. So they have no idea what the band is singing about. Each song blends into the next one, making it one never-ending song. Sometimes until midnight. It can make it impossible to sleep. All the night they are dancing, hanging out, but it's a little hard because you're hearing them. That music stings and you can't just sleep. That's Alaha again from the beginning of this episode. And she's just being polite here. I cannot stress how much the Afghans hate this music. And the food doesn't really help either. What do you think of the food here? Uh, the food, uh, it's just I don't want to. I'm grateful. <laughs> it's a little hard for our culture, you know? <clears throat> a biggest part of our culture is food. The Afghans get almost every meal from this hotel buffet. Yeah. You can be honest. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't want to say that, but you're <laughs> forcing me. But... Uh, to be honest, they, they just <laughs> we are eating like boiled rice, boiled meat. <laughs> to be clear, the staff at the Raffaello say they're trying their best with the food. The hotel manager says they started adding more spices at the request of the Afghans. But at the end of the day, it's a hotel buffet. <laughs> Sophia, Allah's mom, told me a story of someone that got kind of emotional while at the buffet. Like eating food, like... Wait, they were crying while they're eating the food? (laughs) So Sophia is basically describing the situation where this woman is just like wandering up and down the buffet, like in vain, trying to find food, even though the buffet has like tons of salads and dishes. She's asking... What is this? What is this? What is that? And then ends up coming back to the table empty-handed. So she and she was sitting and starting crying that it's nothing here for me to eat. Yeah, she says Afghans are really worried about their tummy, you know? <laughs> they just want to have the good food, yeah. Of course, this isn't really about the food or whether or not they like the music. What you're hearing is homesickness and frustration and fear. Because in reality, there are a lot of things that are genuinely hard about life at the Raffaello. And not knowing how or when they'll be able to leave and move on with their lives, that just makes things worse. People told us about just the monotony of the same thing over and over again, and the uncertainty about the future kind of destroys you. It has been almost 10 months we are living in a hotel. It's very hard. When we are uh, seeing other people, like the tourists, they are so happy walking, and they're enjoying. They came with their families and go back. We feel a little, like, sad, because we want also to be like them. That's Peshtana Rasul. Like every one of the Afghans we talked to, she stressed how grateful she was to be here, to have a room, to not be in Afghanistan. I never heard before about Albania. I've been in some countries, but I've never been in this country. But I especially wanted to get out. It was not important for me which country, but I want uh, to find a safe country. But she's still holding out hope that the safe country will be the U.S. 
After learning they were not eligible for Operation Allies Welcome, the only hope that many Afghans had left was that they might come to the U.S. through other ways, like getting a special immigrant visa or qualifying for refugee status known as Priority 2 or P2. Pashtana is applying for one of those, but she has no idea what's happening with her application. Do you, are you by yourself? Do you have your family here at all? I'm alone here. It's hard. Just, it's very hard. And where is your family? They're in Afghanistan. They're in Kabul. How are they doing? They, they had like a safe money. They're using that. My parents are old. Two of my brothers are illiterate. They're just working a street. They're just receiving per, like every day 50 Afghanis. It's nothing. I was the only person who worked for them. And so they're basically living off of savings now, is that what you mean? Yeah. Do you have much savings left? My mom's saying it's very little. There's a huge amount of pressure to be responsible, you know, and financially responsible for the family members who got left behind. What are you going to do when it runs out? I don't know. That's why, like, when I, in the beginning, I was very happy that I will receive a visa soon. But Pashtana had just received a letter from the State Department. They were asking her to submit even more paperwork for her P2 application. After nearly a year of waiting, this was yet another setback. Even I didn't tell to my family that I received this letter because they will, they will be very sad. These days, Pashtana tries to keep herself busy. She's got a job at the Women's Center, which has been set up in a small room at the Rafaelo to serve the Afghans. She's hoping to send a little bit of money she earns there back to her family in Afghanistan. I'm working, I'm busy, but I'm like totally thinking about them. I never like, when I'm free, I cannot make busy myself, like by, with reading or listening music. It doesn't, I, I, I couldn't do it that because I'm under pressure. I'm like, sometimes I'm um, leaving the house and walking outside. Even when I'm going out for walking, there's so many people and it's very hard. And just sitting on, in a corner and just nothing. What was your first impressions when you came to the Raffaello? It was so new for me because the place was so awesome. Five star, the beach. But day by day, it, it became so not just boring. It's kind of a small place that we are doing nothing. Every day is same. Shahir Husseini was a software developer back in Afghanistan. He's also applying for P2 status. Shahir has been at the Raffaello with his dad. His dad's kidneys are failing. He needs dialysis three times a week. The complicated situation is that my father is also blind. He cannot see. So uh, it is too hard for him. I know. I'm spending the day and night with him. I can imagine the music's even worse then, too. Yeah, it is. It is. Because the doctor said that you cannot use EC for your father because the father's situation is not okay with that. So we cannot open the doors because of music. We cannot turn on the easy. It's, it's too hard, yeah. The Raphael has a basic medical clinic for the Afghans. It's a place where you can get Tylenol, get your temperature checked. Beyond that, there's a public hospital in a nearby town. But things like specialized medications or antibiotics or dental work are all things that the Afghans need to pay for out of pocket. Shahir's dad isn't the only person seriously ill at the Raffaello. A few days before I arrived, his best friend's mom died. My friend Nur Muhammad Hussaini lost his mom about 
four days ago uh, because of the lung problem. So uh, they treated in here. They had a gallon of, uh, gallon of oxygen. So four days ago, she died. I imagine it must make you worry a little bit about your, your dad too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's becoming worse day by day. Because of his dad's deteriorating health, Shahir is frustrated that his application is still moving so slowly. He's scared that his dad won't make it to where they're hoping to go. In this situation, I don't have any choice. What should I do? Um, we are in here, and it is the best choice I have. I cannot go to the other countries illegally. I'm searching for the legal pathway. So it is the best choice I have. Albania, yes. After a year of limbo, a lot of families here are dealing with some major life changes while living in a hotel room. There have been more than two dozen babies born. We met Amrahada Faryad. He worked as a mechanic for a U.S. Army contractor in Afghanistan. And when he and his wife arrived last fall, they had a newborn baby with them. Now that baby is about to turn one, and they're expecting another child. What are the challenges of raising a kid in a hotel? A couple translators helped us out at the hotel. There are so many challenges. Um, one thing, obviously, is the food. The baby is growing up and they need all these different vitamins and everything necessary for their growth. And at times... Mostly they're not able to provide all that um, for them, the food that's necessary for the babies. That's hard. I mean, what do you do? What do you do when you can't find the food? They just have to deal with it. And at times they use some of the food in the restaurant that's given, but they've also bought a very small stuff, very small one, so that they can cook soup or some other things at times just for the baby because the big stoves are not allowed in the hotel. You can hear, even through the translator, that Amr is frustrated. And he's especially frustrated at the nonprofit that brought him here, the Afghan Rescue Project. Those are the people that chartered a plane and faked a wedding to get their guys out. But according to Amr and others, that group hasn't been sending the Afghans enough money for their basic needs. Do you feel like they're assisting you guys? So no, FPG hasn't provided any support from uh, for the babies, but they only uh, gave them stipends three times, that's it. This is where the question of responsibility comes up. Some of the Afghans are accusing the American nonprofits who brought them here of essentially hanging them out to dry. And there's debate over who should be supporting them while they're in limbo. One of the nonprofits basically stopped paying their hotel bill. Abby's been investigating this part of the story more recently, so I talked to her a little bit about what she's been able to find out. We asked the hotel manager, you know, how long they can and or will expect to keep this up? How long 
uh, will there be Afghan residents at the Raffaello Hotel? And he told us, you know, the biggest pressure on the hotel, he said, is the fact that one of the groups hasn't paid its bill since January. That's the Afghan Rescue Project. The hotel manager told us that they owe more than $2 million at this point. $2 million? And this has created this tension and, you know, conflict between the Afghan Rescue Project and the hotel. And the hotel manager says it's really stretching their ability to function. So if if they can pay, of course, the Raffaello Resort can continue the work. But if they stop the financing, then they have to make a decision because they cannot work with loss all the time. It raises this big question that the Afghans in the group are certainly acutely aware of, which is that, you know, well, what is going to happen to them if nobody pays? And we don't really, at this point, we don't know the answer to that. What we know is that everyone's sort of finger pointing in different directions. The Afghan Rescue Project has basically said, you know, they're not going to pay or they don't have the money. The U.S. government says they're not going to pay, that it's not their responsibility. And the hotel, you know, the hotel manager told us... Uh, like, look, this puts us in a bind. Do we, do we kick them out? Do we stop feeding them? You know, like, that wouldn't be fair because it's not their fault. But, you know, the manager told us at the same time, you know, there's, there's kind of a limit to this. How long can you host people in a hotel for free? I guess I want to focus on the Afghan Rescue Project here. Again, it is the group of Jason Kander, the guy that told people that they had their backs, right? Essentially that, like, we owe these Afghans a a debt. And yet, so I guess it's confusing to me to hear that his group is not paying the bills. What did they have to say about why they weren't paying the bills? When I spoke to the Afghan Rescue Project's attorney, uh, Javad Khazali, You know, his explanation was we had only raised so much money and we fully expected them to leave by December. And at the time, we're like, great, you know, we've got the money for this and everything conversation that we've had, our expectation is we know this is chaotic, but this should be, we're thinking by the end of the year, Mm this will get done. And so we simply ran out of money. So now we're burning about half a million dollars a month. Yeah, and, and, and just to be clear, everybody knew this was coming. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a finite amount of money. And this kind of answer, you know, doesn't really sit well with the State Department. You know, State Department officials say, well, you, get, you can't just stop paying your bills. You signed an agreement. You can go out and raise money like everyone else. Right. I mean, do we know if they, like, tried to fundraise but were unsuccessful in doing that? I asked the Afghan Rescue Project if they had, right, tried fundraising. So ha- is is the Afghan Rescue Project trying to raise that money to pay the hotel? I mean, yeah, but but we have, we've been trying everything we can, but, you know, who's going to go and pay somebody else's old bill? Hmm. You know? 
what does other NGOs or other humanitarians, philanthropists, people that helped evacuate people from Afghanistan privately, what what did they make of the situation that Afghan Rescue Project is now in? I'm Ahmed Khan, and I'm a uh, human rights activist philanthropist. One of the people I talked to is Ahmed Khan. He's this investor, businessman, slash philanthropist. And I wanted to talk to him because, like Kander, he was also involved in the evacuation effort last year. But he's been working with refugees for a long time. Well, I mean, there's an old saying, and I guess it, it applies to just about everything, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And there were a lot of good intention people who were trying to help people um, evacuate. But I don't know that they were fully aware of the difficulties that would lie ahead. And Khan was one of these people who was skeptical of the way that the Afghan Rescue Project sort of framed their dilemma. If you just simply evacuate someone from a war zone and then dump them off and say, look, uh, here you are. Uh, and good luck. It's just very unfair. He said, if you're going to put people on an airplane, you're responsible for them. You know, I went into it having worked with refugees for years and years, understanding that, like, I have to be prepared to look after the people that I evacuate indefinitely. You know, uh, what Khan told me is, and what, you know, some of these other nonprofit leaders told me was that it was really heroic what a lot of people did, right, trying to get the vulnerable people out of Afghanistan. But that's only part of the story. And after after a flight lands somewhere, then you have the rest of the story. Do you feel like there are complexities here in the story of the Raffaello between the evacuation and now them being stuck that reflect some of the complexities of the war itself, the war in Afghanistan, that people are invested in the beginning, like in the in the daring, heroic portion of it. But there's a frustration when these things take a lot longer and are more costly than they had hoped. Yeah, I think that actually is an interesting parallel. And I, I think we've seen this with both of America's really big wars in, you know, in the past 20 years, Iraq and Afghanistan, where there's a lot of attention and enthusiasm for the invasion. But then it was what comes after that, trying to build and sustain a, a new government that is a lot more complicated. And that, you know, the U.S. government and the American public both grew impatient with, you know, and lost interest in. And you sort of see that, too, with the end of the U.S. war in Afghanistan, where America withdrew and evacuated these tens of thousands of people. And now, you know, Americans have moved on. Uh, the Biden administration has, in many ways, moved on. Uh, there are many other things to think about, other issues. But for all these Afghans, they're still in the what comes after part. That's still their reality. Yeah, the idea that there's still, that's still their reality and other people have moved on. You know, I think there is a real feeling among Afghans here of feeling betrayed. Our future is not clear. What happens if our cases are rejected? What, what shall we do? In Afghanistan, we lost everything. One of those people we talked to was Paragol Napizoda. 
She was an English teacher back in Afghanistan. She's now at the Raffaello with her husband and two children. Throughout the night, there is music in Raffaello, but we are not joining. Even I myself just escape from that music because I think it is bothering me. When I see the people, they are very happy, they are laughing, they are enjoying. Sometimes I become jealous because I cannot enjoy. I, my children, they say that when, when we will go to U.S. to have our normal school because we are studying here with maybe with our own language, but as we are going just or getting older, so we cannot learn the language. So um, we cannot ha- have our normal life, especially with the unclear process of our cases. Since we're in Albania, I hear that there's been some updates from the State Department. What are those? On August 15th, which happened to be the one-year anniversary of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, although the State Department says that was just a coincidence, the State Department and uh, Homeland Security officials got on the phone with all these organizations. And they said, guess what? We have news. We have decided to expand eligibility for Operation Allies Welcome, basically, to all these people who are left. What they said is they're going to be sending, you know, a team in September to Albania and that they're going to work on processing the remaining Afghans and getting them through the system so they can come to the United States. And so what does that mean for the people there? I mean, how much longer might it take for them to be processed if if they're included? I asked, okay, well, what does that mean for timeline? And Elizabeth Jones, that's the State Department official we heard from earlier, she said, well, you know, we're going to try to do it as quickly as we can, but, you know, we are hoping to have everyone processed and out of there by June 2023. Oh, wow. That's a long time. That's almost another year. Yeah. It seems like the major tension here, it's like when you consider who is responsible for the situation at the Raffaello, the State Department looks at the situation and says, we did not bring them here. Right. We are not responsible for the people that were evacuated here. It was these NGOs, these private groups. And when you talk to the private groups... They say, basically, we're filling in for a vacuum of responsibility, that the U.S. government had no plan for all these people, many of them who were allies to the United States. Yeah. And they saw as the U.S. owing them a debt. And I wonder, like, how do you square those two different perspectives? I think that a lot of the tension and sort of residual anger from people, including a lot of military veterans at the Biden administration over the withdrawal, was that, you know, this question of who counts as an ally? Who was the U.S. responsible for? Uh, You know, when you invade a country and you're there for 20 years and you send, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops into that country to fight a war and you count on the local population to help you fight it and pour all the 20 years of effort into building a country, then what is your obligation to the people of that country? And I think that's a question that people have different answers to. And the fact that people have different answers to that is at the core of this tension now, a year later, over what is the U.S. responsibility to these people who are still in limbo, left behind. 
This story was reported by Abby Hausloner and Ted Muldoon. It was produced and mixed by Ted and edited by me, Martine Powers. Additional editing support from Maggie Penman, Efrain Hernandez, Peter Finn, and Renita Jablonski. Translation help by Anya Trollenberg and Farkanda Omar. Production support by Sean Carter. And the music you're hearing here, that is 19-year-old Shakria Hamidi. She is another Afghan stuck in the Raffaello whose dream is to play guitar professionally. She says she's been accepted to music school in Michigan, but she's afraid she might lose her spot if she has to wait much longer. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We'd love to know what you think about this episode and the other stories you hear on our show. Email us at postreports at washpost.com. The executive producer of our show is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. Our editor is Lexi Diao. Our producers are Charlotte Freeland, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Ariel Plotnik, Renny Spronovsky, Alana Gordon, and Eliza Dennis. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are our assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. Our intern is Natalie Bettendorf. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 